eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast presented by STP. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. I'm here in the Daytona International Speedway Media Center in one of the tiny radio rooms where we have a very big NASCAR executive. We have Steve O'Donnell here today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be here. And by big, you mean weight, right? (laughs) (laughs) I most certainly do not mean that, although I appreciate your self-deprecating sense of humor. By big, I mean the NASCAR (laughs) vice president and senior, I'm sorry, senior vice president and chief racing developmental officer. Did I get your title right? That was right. right. It's too long, but I was right. No, I I don't think it's too long. That was good. That was good. Actually, I, sometimes I feel like we gloss over that, the structure of NASCAR and the titles. And sometimes I don't know if we fully give it credit for what some of these titles are. So essentially, tell us what Chief Racing Development Officer means. Yeah, so my role is uh, really to kind of oversee a great team of, of folks at NASCAR. So primarily, it's the easiest way to explain it would be kind of all the things that happen at track, on track, would fall under my area. And then all the kind of business marketing elements um, are really Steve Phelps. So uh, the R&D Center up in, in Concord, competition, and then the relationships with the tracks are really the areas that, that we manage on a day-to-day basis. And so you work out of the R&D Center? Work out of the R&D Center, um, travel back and forth to Daytona uh, every now and then, but uh, and then primarily at a number of the races as well. The org chart for NASCAR here and where you fall in the hierarchy, I mean, essentially you report to Brian France and are in charge of competition. The way it would be is, is really Mike and Brent, but yeah, I mean, and definitely you know, in charge of competition, but I I have a lot of bosses, too, still, who will, who will weigh in, including the drivers, media members, fans. But that's okay. I think that's all part of it is the NASCAR. You know, we really look at it candidly and, and not to be you know, funny about it. The fans are almost drive a lot of, hey, we like this direction or we don't. So you work for everybody. Is what I try to, yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you mentioned Mike's name. That's Mike Helton. You know, you were put into this role after the 2013 season. And Mike, before the 2015 season, his role changed from president yep. at the time to vice chairman of Correct. NASCAR. Correct. And he still t- maintains many of the duties he had as president. And I know that he's still senior official on days when he attends races. And I know he has final say on competition. Like you said, you're, you're reporting to Brian, but you're also reporting to Mike. But you essentially became the competition 
day-to-day guy as Mike stepped back from that role. No, I, I think that's fair. And, and yeah. Mike's been terrific and kind of, you know, hey, here are some of the things I've learned along the way. And, you know, every day you, you think you know what's going to happen. You see something new and, you know, you can kind of pull Mike aside and say, boy, I didn't see that one coming. Um, and, and it's been a great <laughs> sounding board on, on what happens at the racetrack. Obviously still a big presence in our sport, you know, has great relationships in the sport, but has also let kind of the new group that we have up at R&D feel their way uh, through the system a little bit, you know, make some calls at the racetrack. It's the only way you learn right is, is to be in it and and see what happens so i think it's a good time right now for the sport with with mike still around and, and being able to teach us um, to stay away from some of the areas you know that maybe he learned from and, and we can continue to grow that is great that he's still around but figuratively and and literally you are filling some big shoes there those are insanely enormous shoes in some they, ways to... they are um and i'd say <laughs> trying to mike's got a, a huge presence in the garage and and one of the things i think that that mike's always brought is you know he's he is there and he's accessible uh, the drivers will tell you that the owners will tell you that and that's something that I've tried to do as well is that you want to be a sounding board you're not always going to like what somebody says right but the thing I've always learned is when you're listening you're probably going to learn something or you're probably going to get a perspective right that you hadn't heard about before so try and do that each and every day learn something new and then uh, you know reach out to a lot of the competitors media and just say what are you thinking what are you seeing and, and what do we need to do to be better so it, most of your job then really is Steve just listening we got to make tough decisions right so at right. some point you know Mike told me this too that you know as you move up in the organization not a lot of people come to you with good news anymore. Right? It's, it's, it's the challenges. So I would say that listen a lot, try and give direction. We've got great people though. So, you know, I'm not a micromanager. I like folks to go out there and, and make those calls, but still have to make some tough calls from time to time and live with it. I'd say the toughest learning thing, uh, Nate, is that you're not going to be everybody's best friend. You know, you're going to okay. have to make calls that drivers or teams don't like. And all you can do is hope that they respect or at least understand why you made that call. You know, the idea that, hey, you're going to be friends with everybody. That's, that's, that's tough and something that uh, you learn kind of the hard way as you, as you go up. Sounds a little bit like my job. Sometimes I agree, when you're right? making people angry in journalism, you're totally doing the right agree, thing. Totally right? <laughs> I mean, you're writing what what is a sound article, podcast, whatever it may be, but you're telling the truth from, from your perspective, right? right? And, and the truth and hurts. The yeah. truth hurts. That same person may say, oh, great article the next week, but it's it's a balance, right? So it, I think it's spot on. What made you want this thankless job then in which you, no, you have know, to I, listen to lots of people and, yeah, and give them bad I, news? Uh, I, I actually, I, I love it. I have to do probably a better job of, you know, I told my kids this too, don't get too high, don't get too low. You know, you never know what's going to happen and kind of try and keep an even keel. But, you know, for me, every day is different. Like I said earlier, you think you've seen everything and something new happens. The relationships in the sport, I think that's what keeps me going is really generally, I, I love the sport first and foremost, but I love the people in it. We've got people who care and want to see this sport continue to grow. And that's what keeps me going is, is how do we keep this, you know, not next year, but 30 years from now, where do we want to leave your mark on the sport or just put it in a better place as it continues to grow. Obviously, things are a lot different from when Mike Hilton entered NASCAR and, and was a big part of, obviously, the Bill France Jr. era. He was a right-hand man on competition through a lot of the 90s. What advice does he give you, knowing that things have changed so much, but I'm sure some things are still the same, even they, though they might not look the same? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, and Brian's been big on this, I think it's, you know, honoring a lot of our traditions, but also embracing technology, and especially from Brian, you know, not being afraid of change. Change is hard to make, and it's going to be tough if it's the chase, if it's introducing stages in the races. I mean, these are big decisions. We don't expect everyone's going to jump up and down and say, hey, that was terrific coming out of the box, but it's not being afraid to do that. And I think Brian's really brought a lot of that to our way of thinking. Granted, you know, we're always not going to make the right decision, but it's not being afraid to try and grow. And I think one of those areas, Nate, was, you know, we wanted to be, you know, a big time sport. And with that comes more eyeballs, more media scrutiny, rightly so. And so you can't be afraid to get the positive articles or, or the negative ones. And, and be able to, if you believe that you made the right decision, 
see it through. Almost each race, we'll talk about certain calls. You know, I'll give you one even even recently. Um, we closed pit road two laps prior to the end of a stage. We try to finish each stage under green if we can. I think we're in Pocono, and we had a wreck. We called the red flag, and you know, we only had one green flag lap. It turned out okay, but in hindsight, you know, you weren't able to open up pit road. You might have put some drivers in a challenging position. You know, running through debris. So you know, you look back and you say, I wish I had that one over again. But those are the ones you learn and, and just not make that happen again. You do a lot of work on the officiating side, as you mentioned, Stephen. I know you were in the tower just recently at Sonoma. I know you're in the tower a lot, and you talk on SiriusXM weekly about the competition side. As you mentioned, you're looking 30 years down the road as well, so you're focused on long term. How do you balance your job between the immediacy of you just came from the garage at Daytona, and thankfully everybody's through inspection. Not every day it goes that way. How do you balance your job with the immediacy of putting out fires out there with the, the long term? Uh, it's a great question, and it's one of those that we've struggled with. I think Nate as an organization that if you if you're at the track Thursday through Sunday, you're busy, right? You're traveling maybe Monday. Tuesday, you're in the office, and Wednesday, where am I going next? And you start to just do the day-to-day and react versus where are we going in the future. So for us, it was really hiring some people with some really great experience, you know, bringing in Scott Miller, bringing in John Probst, um, Jay, and and some different folks that get it and can manage the day-to-day, comfortable with them in the tower, making calls. And so we can start to concentrate on, you know, where are we going to be five years from now? What's the Gen 7 car? You know, what? how are we introducing technology? And I don't think we did a great job of that in the past. I think we were much more reactionary and part of it's the industry too is getting the teams getting the drivers to start meeting and saying hey it's great where we're at today but you know what do we want the format to look like in 2018 19 and 20 and and that's been a good process we're still not where we need to be but I think people really get now that hey let's do the blocking and tackling but Five years is going to be here before we know it. And how do we make sure we're in the right position to succeed with our television partners and, and tracks and, and grow the fan base? So has that helped a little bit in terms of that weekly weekend grind that you're talking about, Steve, where you guys are in that garage area? I know things can get tense, sometimes contentious in there that, hey, if you're also meeting long term about future, everybody knows we're all pulling the rope in the same direction. Has it diffused some of the short term stuff? Yeah, no, I think it has. And really empowering people to do their jobs. If Richard Bucks here, he's, he's running the Monster Energy Series. He's empowered to make those decisions on, hey, I think we got to penalize this crew chief, or I think, you know, we should open up the pits on, you know, certain areas. You know, that should be his role, and and it is. And I think, you know, that took us a while to get to letting folks do their jobs and and putting them in that place. And so, you know, we're still getting there, but part of that was bringing in talent that the teams trusted and people got to know and putting them in positions to make calls. So that's been a real change really over the last 18 months, and I think you'll see more of that as we go. What do you feel like you're focused most on long-term? I think right now, really the, the team model and where we want to go and, and really what we're racing. Fans obviously like the stock car aspect of the sport, but marrying up the OEMs, our race teams, and kind of that new generation of drivers and making sure that whatever we put on the track puts us in the best position to succeed. And that's from an economical standpoint, technology, what's some cool stuff we can put in the car. And then what do these young drivers want to get enthusiastic about and feel good about what they're racing? So that's really, I'd say the biggest focus right now is bringing all those parties together to talk about Gen 7 and where we want to go collectively as an industry. Maybe not so much of how much are we spending on spindles and in different parts and pieces, but what would be the coolest technology we can put in that car to showcase to the fans is really kind of the avenue we want to go down. How often do you feel like you meet on that? That's that's almost a process that's just started. What we've talked to, to the team owners about is just trying to hold the line as much as possible on the rules package and concentrate on, on the longer term. So you know, we've got a meeting coming up in the next 10 days with the owners to walk through some ideas on this, and I think you'll see, you know, 
almost a, a work group that takes place every month coming together on this concept. Do you even have a time frame yet for Gen 7? It's on the board, but de- debated right now. So I'd say, you know, within the next, you know, anywhere from two to four years, um, you could see that. And, and I think, you know, that will depend on, you know, the equipment that we have out there right now and, and making sure that uh, we give the teams the best option. Obviously, the OEMs have a huge impact on that. And, and the biggest thing for us is just getting everybody to work together and understand, you know, what this will be about. And right. ultimately, this is going to benefit the fans. It's going to make the racing better. And if so, great, let's let's go. I think I, I saw you say recently, Steve, that right now, though, you sort of want to hold the line on change because 11 winners already this season, stages, you can argue this with some people, but I think stages have been well-received. I think as the season unfolds and we get to the playoffs, they're going to be more well-received because there'll be a lot more context to what's happening yeah. now that yep. I don't think people understand fully. So is that sort of the goal that, that you mentioned, maybe two to four years? So maybe the next couple of years, you guys are in a good place? Yeah, I think I think it's a really fair question. I, I think on the rules package, unless we see something that'll make a really big impact from an aero standpoint on the intermediate right. tracks, you know, we, we'd pull that lever, but we do. We like the way stages are playing out. I, I think you're spot on, Adon. We take it for granted that, you know, hey, this is where Martin Truex will be in the playoffs, but that's very new for fans, right? It's a whole right. new system, and so asking them to understand that immediately when we're still trying to see how it will play out, you know, we've got to give it some time, and, and to your point, see how it goes throughout the playoffs and then see where we're at. One of the things we looked at when we came up with stages was, you know, what if the regular season winner, you know, has a huge lead going into the playoffs? And everybody said, you know what, that's okay right. um, because they've earned that. And and you're seeing Martin Truex dominate in stages, and, and he should get through those first three races. He shouldn't be out in Chicago. So and we like that, but, you know, one of the other things you see is – huge separations potentially between 16th and 17th. Is that okay? So we're just trying to see what happens on the racetrack. We get to Miami. Number one, did the fans like it? But does everyone feel like they had a better shake or better shot at a championship and feel like their season carried all the way to Miami? I didn't even really pick up on until I noticed you mentioned it recently. The concept of a winless champion has been greatly diminished, and it didn't even occur to me until recently. Again, this is something that I don't feel like you can understand until things transpire and they unfold and you see that a guy like Martin Truex Jr. can have basically a third of a full race of points a little bit more than halfway through the regular season I mean he could enter the playoffs he wins another race he wins the regular season points title he could be close to like 60 points that he'll carry through those three yep. rounds and then if he doesn't win in that third round we've seen certainly the last few years Steve that the other three spots could be occupied by winners I didn't even consider no, it so yeah, two, two things when we sat in the room and beat it up were okay if you had the Martin Truex situation and you said okay what about you know 14th 15th and 16th they'll be so far behind they have to win and right. we all looked at each other and said they should have to win right right and so we we're like okay that makes sense and then we looked down in Miami and, and again never know right how this will play out but you looked at Miami and the best chance for a non-winner in the playoffs to get into that final four would be the regular season points leader just based on bonus points and that felt okay if you had three race winners and let's say Truex didn't win but performed well enough and he was the fourth felt okay Okay, let's pause the podcast here to tell you about a product from our presenting sponsor, STP, and that is the Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer. For more than 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products such as this to help engines perform at their best. And this newest product, the STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer, delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline. That helps keep fuel fresh during storage, especially in engines that are stored over an extended period of time. I have used products such as these for years in my personal cars. They're very easy to use. You just put the contents in the gas tank and they improve fuel efficiency and also keep your engines running smoothly. 
The STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer is compatible with all two- and four-stroke engines, including lawnmowers, boats, and motorcycles. And one bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. So be sure to check out the STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer. And now let's return to our conversation with Steve O'Donnell. You start with NASCAR in 1996, and before that, you were with the Daytona Beach Cubs for a I was. Years, I was. Uh, so I, I got out of college, thought I was going to work in minor league baseball, always wanted to kind of work in sports, was a NASCAR fan, and ended up just doing unpaid internship. Probably the best thing that happened to me, because you did everything from you pulled the tarp when it rained, to you sold advertising, you ran the security group at the ballpark, you did it all. And so you got right. to learn a lot of different aspects sent out the press releases after the race that nobody read, but I, I, felt, like, I, I felt like I tried. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling, I had man. some good. You it's know, like yeah. shouting into the wilderness. Yeah, I had some yeah. good stuff. But, you know, <laughs> I can put the score accurately. It gave me a good perspective of, you know, number one, that you could actually work in sports. I thought was cool. I saw something at NASCAR where, and it was on the marketing side originally, doing a lot of the victory lane and promotional stuff, and, and started out in 96 uh, doing that, which was awesome. Been a couple years working my butt off traveling, and luckily they said, hey, we like this guy. Let's, let's give him a shot. Did you know much about NASCAR before you started working there? I did. I certainly wasn't like, you know, the competition guru in terms of, you know, in the weeds on a lot of the rules and knew it was a really emerging sport. So I think twofold. I liked the sport, but also saw, man, this thing has huge potential too. And when I started, I think the first meeting we had, we went up to Jacksonville, may have been 30 employees. Brian France, I think it was, it was 26. Uh, Brian said, look to your left and look to your right. One of those people won't be here next year. <laughs> We're about performing, and, and we got to get things done. I was like, "Oh boy, this is going to be uh, encouraging, gonna be interesting." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was good. I mean, it was uh, you know you saw a lot of folks you know working hard, a lot of long hours, and um, a lot of new things happening too. The the biggest thing for me is I love just everything that went around the sport, you know, and the fan yeah. aspect is very similar in terms of minor league baseball with the fans and kind of having that access to the players, family atmosphere, and, and really like that aspect of it. Just just something that I wanted to be a part of. Earlier, you were saying that you're drawn to the fact the wide range of people, the diversity of people. They're all walks of life. You know, what? what's always interesting is, you know, you, you get calls from, uh, you know, even on the radio, right? The the guy who's driving the truck down the road for a living, busting his butt, and the CEO from, from a company who's also a fan. And, and you know, being able to listen to both of those perspectives, probably learn just as much from both of them because they bring different aspects to the sport, different things that they see. And I think that's a cool aspect of our sport and, and having it be relatable. And you have a unique perspective on this, Steve, because you have been exposed to a wide diversity and variety of cultures because you actually <laughs> yeah. spend a lot of time, your formative years overseas. You were born in Massachusetts? I was born in New Jersey. New Jersey, yep. okay. Yep. But lived in Massachusetts. Lived in Massachusetts, um, okay. Kind of the, uh, the kindergarten through sixth grade going way back in Massachusetts. My dad was a principal and my mom taught. My dad had always wanted to, unbeknownst to me at the time, wanted to work overseas at an international school. He had interviewed for, I think, a job in Iran before everything changed there. Didn't get it and came home and announced that we were moving to Egypt. And uh, <laughs> I wish I could say at the time that I was like, oh, this is awesome, dad. I can't wait to go. But we moved when I was going into seventh grade. I spent six years in Egypt, graduated at the pyramids, went to an international school there. And it was probably the, the greatest thing, you know, that I think my parents have given to me. Different 
different cultures, travel all around the world. You know, if you played sports, instead of going to a state tournament, you know, you'd go to Austria and stay with the kids there who went to that school, and teams from all over Europe would come in, and so it was a lot of fun. That's cool. You lived in Cairo? I lived right outside Cairo in a town called Mahdi. It's about 20 minutes outside of Cairo. So there's the Little League World Series, right, that everybody knows, So, but there's also the Big League World Series, which is 16 to 18-year-olds. So we uh, ended up, because there are no teams in the Middle East or Africa representing that, and then we had to beat four teams in Europe to make it to the Big League World Series, which we promptly got destroyed. <laughs> but it was it was quite funny because you, you showed up in Fort Lauderdale and the media members were like, oh, you, you know, you guys shower, you know, how do you live? And we're like, we're all Americans, you know, but it was just a whole different perspective, right, that, that you see. So it was cool. It was a cool learning experience. So this would have been the early 80s? 80s through, uh, so I graduated in 87. Five or six years? Seven years. When I think back of the, the Middle East then, I think of Beirut in 82. Yeah. I mean, granted, Egypt is on the west side of the Middle East, but that was still among the most volatile regions in the uh, world. So, uh, so one of my... You know, really good friends was Andrew Kerr. Uh, Steve Kerr is his brother. Oh, really? Um, so, you know, I became a, an Arizona basketball fan because in, in Egypt, you didn't have TV in terms right. of, you know, getting American sports. So Steve Kerr was in Egypt with us the freshman year. It was so good that they said, hey, you need to move back to California and hopefully someone will discover you. So he ended up at Arizona. And so we would get the Arizona tapes, which was cool. But obviously his dad was, was assassinated um, in right. Beirut. So, you know, I was there with Andrew and then that was certainly tough to see you know him go through all that and then you know it was also a very interesting perspective you know I don't want to bore everyone but you, you'd sit in a, a class on the Egypt Israeli war and which which uh, Egypt clearly struggled with and you'd have an Israeli kid to your right and an Egyptian to your left both believing they destroyed each other in this war and it was just fascinating to listen to these two kids who you know had a completely different perspective uh, and so it was you know you learned you learned quick that would seem to serve you well in your current job no, you have two guys two team owners on opposite no, sides of the point. same issue well, right even I, i'd say that even organizations you know i, I love richard childers he is passionate about the sport right will always come in but I can't tell you, there's been a couple of times where, you know, one of Richard's guys will come in and say, look, we have got to change this. And he'll say, okay, you know, we'll look at this. And five minutes later, here comes Richard. Hey, this is the greatest thing we, we're doing. So it's, you know, it's, it's a balance anytime. And, and a yeah. lot of it is just over communicating and making sure people know, you know, where we're coming from. Right? As a basketball fan, I'm curious now, how did you know Andrew Kerr? Same age, right? And so Steve was, I think he's three years older than Andrew. So Andrew's his younger brother, and I went to high school with him in Egypt. So he was there the whole time we graduated together. Um, and obviously, since of you know lost lost some touch, but uh, you know follow him still on Facebook and see him at the the Warriors games with his brother. So that's that's pretty neat. That's cool. So even though his dad was the president at the American University in Beirut, they, yep. were, they were living in Egypt. Yeah, so they time. moved okay. after that, moved over. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's incredible story. All of this history that you have internationally explains a lot, Steve. Because I did a story uh, when I was still at USA Today three and a half years ago about the international push. Yep. Now I have a lot more context for understanding. You're obviously passionate about this as, to as me, a NASCAR it's, issue. Uh, I don't want to upset any U.S. fans. I don't, I, I don't want them to think we're running away from the United States. I, I don't at all. But to me, you know, if you're a basketball fan, the NBA, I think to me, is a, sure. is a terrific model in that if you aspire to be at the highest level, you still want to be at the NBA. But they've created leagues in, in other countries where it's just it's a cool sport. And for us, and to me, that's the model. Um, you know, you can just be a U.S. or North American sport, but there's a big world out there. And we're seeing that with, you know, the, the series in Europe, the series in Mexico, seeing a guy like Dan 
Danny come over is, is big for us. And so what we don't want to do is go take a cup race to China and, and not have a reason for it. We learned that lesson candidly the hard way. I mean, we went to Japan. It was great, right? You know, some, some people said, hey, this was, this was neat, but what did we leave? You know, where's the Japanese drivers? Where are the sponsors? And so I think we learned a lot from that. And, and so the next model is we'll run a race here, but there better be a system in, ter- in terms of, you know, bringing up some young kids. Yeah, as you put it for that story that I did, Steve, it, was a, it wasn't just about cashing a sanction check from Suzuka or no. Mexico City. It had to be about putting down roots. And, Gotta be. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's a... I think it was a short-term gain, but, you know, long-term, you know, what did we really do for the sport? Uh, and, and going forward, you know, if you're going to take a Dale Earnhardt, you know, or now a Dale Earnhardt Jr. over to, to China, I, I would think, you know, he'd also want to see, all right, what are we building here? And, and I was right. part of building, you know, that Japanese driver who, who's got a chance. And when you say Danny, I should clarify for everybody listening, you mean Daniel Suarez. <laughs> I yes, mean, I'm sorry. I mean, yes, no, that's, that's cool. No, no, it's really cool because I remember you called him Danny when when we did this story. I sat down with you. This was the, the 2013 season finale, and I think at the time, Time. Was Suarez just coming out of the NASCAR Mexico yeah, Series? Yeah, yep. Okay, and was was just coming to America to you know begin his career with Joe Gibbs Racing. And obviously, you, you saw something there that really could develop into something. There have been some issues though since then with with the Mexico Series. I know Steve. I know they took a little bit of a hiatus. It seems like things are back there. How would you categorize things now in terms of the, the international graph? I mean, it seems like it's working. You've got Daniel Suarez, Alan Day. There are signs of that that I don't think are outliers just because they have sponsorship. Are there more signs of more Danny Suarez's? No, I think it's, it's a great question. I think we're not as far along as we'd like to be. You've got the uh, the series in place. Mexico, we did take a, a hiatus. Part of that was you know, wanting to be with the right promoter group. We were with one that was more in the concert business, which was great to kind of get our roots in Mexico, but not really racers. So feel better about the partnership we have now. Um, Europe, I think, has got huge potential in terms of the model of a little bit of a cheaper way to get into stock car racing. And fans are starting to see some some different elements of what NASCAR brings to a race versus maybe some of the open wheel Canada as well. So I, I'd say I think those pillars are in place to continue to, to develop some drivers. But you know, when we look, you know, where are we going? I think China, India, you look at you know, the car culture just emerging there. And some of the things that were built around NASCAR, you know, the family aspect, the automobile, you know, all those things are coming together in both those countries and even parts of South America. If we can, in a smart way, go with our OEMs and, and really partner to, to create series there where you know NASCAR can be a part of that development, I, I think that's a, a huge opportunity for us. So there isn't necessarily though anybody like a, like a Suarez that you, you can see and point to and say, here's a guy who's going to... I think there's a couple soon. drivers, but probably, probably still early. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the car culture. As we're talking about car culture here, moving toward you know autonomous vehicles and, and God knows what in the yeah. next 10, 15, 20 years. In China and India, it's still relatively... It's still basic. emerging. No, yeah. no. Now, granted, you know, the, the first car, some of those folks drive right are going to be very different, you know, from, from what we <laughs> yeah, first drove. But, yeah. but I think we can learn and, and do some things with partners. And, and it's got to make sense, though, for our U.S. partners as well, where, you know, they're trying to break into those markets. You know, I, I think one of the things you've seen from other series is they, they've taken a race uh, to a certain country that, that doesn't really help any of the team owners or their sponsors, and that doesn't make a lot of sense for us. So doing it in a smart way and, and kind of trying to create a business that, that really everybody benefits from. In your new role, Steve, the, again, you took it in the end of 2013, I believe it was 2014, when you started making your, your weekly appearances on Sirius XM. Yeah, I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> 
No apologies necessary, my friend. You provided us a lot of content, and with apologies to the Motor Racing Network, I think you are the voice of NASCAR more than anyone else these days. Trouble. I didn't realize. I'll give you a quick story. So our, our <laughs> comms guys asked if if we would do this, and I was like, yeah, you know, sure, I'll, I'll do it. So I I do the interview, and then I think I it might have been one of your articles or, or tweet, and I called. And I said, man, Nate's quoting me. What is this? And they're like, well, that's you're on the radio speaking on me. I was like, darn, I didn't realize. This. Well, I think you deserve a lot of credit. I mean, we use those interviews now on NASCAR America, on NBCSN. You know, we run stories on them. Other outlets do as well. I mean, those 15 minutes that you spend with Mike Bagley and Pete Pistone can really set the tone for the week. And I think have been good in a lot of ways because it allows you guys to get out front of things and not have things fester from from the weekend. Mm -hmm. You can put things to bed. Is that it? Does I I agree with that? One of the things, though, I probably learned the hard way, and I'd actually love your perspective on this that I didn't realize was so by doing that one of the things we got from the media is they're avoiding us on Sunday and waiting till Monday. And so in talking to our comms folks, you know, I've always thought, should we, you know, Sunday night, regardless of the race, pro con, whatever, just, you know, Hey, we're available to, to just talk about it. And I, I think that's an avenue we may go down just because it's, you know, we're all there. And when we go right and, and you're all writing your articles, you know, it kind of looks like, oh, are they hiding something, which we're not. And I think, you know, just given our perspective, right, even if there's no questions, just being available is something we may want to do in the future. I think that's advantageous to us. I mean, certainly for the beat media core that, that's here weekly that invests time and money and, and traveling, yep. that's that would be a huge plus for us. And I would hope there'd be some graciousness on our part and appreciative of that. But at the same time, Time, you might not get the breadth that you get with that's AM fair. appearance I, on Sirius, no, that's, too. That's fair. So, but I think, you know, there's pros and cons either way, right? Yeah, so I think, true. you know, we got a number of folks there, and it would be a way for us, too, to, to have some of those folks talking to the media and probably something we'll look at. Not only does that make you the face, you're you're out front on a Monday morning for NASCAR. It, I'm sure it also makes you the target of some <laughs> derision. Yes. Uh, especially on social media. Yes. Uh, how have you learned to handle that? It's been tough, to be honest with you. So I'll give you my quick history on Twitter. So I, um, <laughs> you know, a little bit older, right? But I saw that, I think it was Jenna Fryer or someone, people are, you know, starting to use Twitter. And I was like, I, I should just learn. No one, I don't see a lot of people in our company doing this so I got on there and just started messing around and wanted to do some ticket giveaways and found that it was a fairly good way to you know hear from fans or just talk to fans one-on-one for that it's been it's been awesome Um, but I've also learned some lessons you know the the hard way you know it is a direct way for anybody who wants to to say anything they want and you gotta have a thick skin right that's part of hey that's what we get paid to do but you know, I know my kids from some from time to time. If like, ah, Dad, I want to tweet back to this person. Like, no, no, you don't want to do that. Don't engage. So, yeah, I'd say my my best one though, Nate, was I I had I'd gotten crushed for a couple weeks on Twitter, and I told my wife this was leading into Miami, and I was like, you know what, I, I'm taking a break for. I, I got to get through Miami. I can't do this. Ah, like, oh, you did your ticket giveaway every week. You know, you should you should do do the last one. So I call up. My good friend Mike Ford and I say, "Hey Mike, I don't have a good trivia question." He sends one to me. I send it out, and uh, somebody sends the right answer. I say, "Hey, congratulations!" And Twitter starts lighting up. You idiot! That's not correct. <laughs> and I call Ford, and he said, "Whoops, we've made a mistake." So I was like, "Oh man, you can't make this up." So, <laughs> but it's you know, it's look, it's it's a great avenue I think to interact with fans. I, I for the most part, I enjoy doing it. I, I don't like the fact, and this is not just for me, this is for anybody, that you can say 
the worst things that you'd never say to someone's face. Right. Um, if you'd say it to someone's face and you tweet it to them, that's no problem. But more so for the younger kids, it's it's a challenge when you, you worry a little bit about the future of, of how easy it is to take some right. shots at somebody. That is the worst part, the anonymity yeah. of it yep. and being able to just not be held accountable. Not for be held, yeah. yeah. But, but then the, the flip side is you can engage and then I can get on there in five minutes say, hey, you know, here's Nate's perspective on the sport. Here's this. And really quickly, you can be like, wow, here's, I learned, number one, I learned some new things on the news. I learned, you know, here's kind of where the media feels we're at or some challenges. And, and it's terrific. For right. Them. All right. It allows you to keep your finger on the pulse of exactly. everything. So don't delete it. No, I won't delete it. No, I won't. I bet it's, you've been close. I've been close a couple <laughs> times, but then I but uh, I deleted the app one time, but I came back. I came back. Okay. Well, we appreciate you being on there because just like SiriusXM, that's the way sometimes we, yep. we get the NASCAR perspective. So that's good. So sometimes you get NASCAR personalities weighing in when you're on Twitter. And you recently were kidding Dale Jr. about the overtime line. <laughs> yes. And he said he wanted a one-year contract with a 10-year option to be the head decider. I'm in. I, I've told Dale Jr. Uh, as early as two years ago, I was like, hey, man, I don't know when you're going to hang it up. But come on over. I'll do whatever you need. So, yeah, no, that, that was funny because Jr. obviously has huge following, right? Great perspective, and, and he cares, right? He'll go right. back to any year and tell you, hey, this – but the overtime line came from the drivers, and it was one of those that I was like, this is classic, man. I give him credit. He said, yeah, this might have been our idea, but we need to change it. So I think that is one, Nate, that you look at. The idea for a super speedway you know, probably made sense at the time, but we're going to take a hard look for 2018 of, of making that the start-finish line. You know, you, you talk to a promoter, and you say, boy, that's great. You know, you got a lot of seats back there on the backstretch, and you're like, yeah, that's a great point. And so all those things – if you take the time and you put it up on a board and say, what are the positives to this? There's not a ton of them. Yeah. Um, so I think if we can get it back to the start-finish line and, and make sure fans at least get that one full lap, that's, that's the direction we want to go. Some, but not for this season. That would be for next season. I think it would be tough to pull off. Yeah, yeah. I think it will be next season. I understand that. Let's pause the podcast here to tell you about a new NASCAR podcast from a new sponsor. Check it out. Drivers, start your engines! NASCAR, family tradition, American pastime, serious fun. But have you heard the one about the champion driver shot down in his prime? He's got a gun sucked into the bib of his overalls. Or how Richard Petty broke his losing streak at Daytona. He hadn't won in so long, he said, you know, where's victory lane? I forget. And Kyle said, well, I know, I'll show you the way. Do you know what 2G really feels like? Your head is going to come off your neck and exit the car through the right side window. Or would you rather just kick back and enjoy the ride? Hell yeah. I'm Rich Phillips, sports broadcaster and voice and of Texas the Motor Speedway. The first lap turn by the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series on the newly repaved and reprofiled Texas Motor Speedway. And I love NASCAR, so I'm working with Bush Beer and Wondry to bring you a new podcast that's going to take you behind the scenes and into my world at the track. We always are trying to figure out how to be better, how to one-up ourselves. You know, that's just kind of in our blood. Find something that you love and do it, and that's exactly what I did. She gave me written permission, but she thought it was just for one event. I told her, no, Mom, it was for 100 years. Yeah, that last one was NASCAR royalty Bobby Allison, and there's more where that came from. Here on Heritage Road, we've got outlaws, bootleggers, photo finishes, fiery crashes, tech talk, and tailgating. We'll take you down into the pits and up into the TV booth. You'll be able to smell the exhaust through your earbuds. 44 cars times 850 horsepower. You'll never be the same. Even if you're a lifelong fan of the sport, there's always more to learn. 
And if you've never paid attention, well, there's no better time than now. This is by far the best racing's ever been. So subscribe for free on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Wondery.com, or wherever you get your podcast. Look for Heritage Road, brought to you by Crisp Cold. Please drink responsibly. And now let's return to our conversation with Steve O'Donnell. So we joke about Steve, but Dale has great institutional knowledge of NASCAR, even though he's a little wishy-washy yep. on the overtime line. No, that's right. Just yeah. kidding, Dale. And he has great sway because of his popularity. Jeff Gordon has great ambassadorial skills and corporate sponsor savvy. Uh, Tony Stewart owns racetracks. He owns race series. He has strong opinions on management, everything like that. As these guys retire, is there an opportunity for NASCAR? They're all enormously invested in the sport, each in their own way, but certainly through team ownership. Yep. But are there opportunities there where these guys could be a part of what you guys do in maybe a different way because they have still that driver's perspective but it isn't influenced by being a competitor yep uh i would say absolutely um we're open to to all of that i think what's cool right now maybe not with a former role you know you look at even how stages came together you know you got a guy like jeff gordon who's you know been hugely successful in the sport right tv he's got a lot of things he could probably be doing and when he's taking the time to fly in from wherever to sit in those meetings about stages and say, hey, here's where I think we should go, that sends a message, too, to our current drivers of this is important and this is what you can do. Dale Jr., the same thing. And then you look at kind of our current crop of drivers. You know, Denny Hamlin was in every one of those meetings. Brad Kozlowski taking the time. You know, Harvick wanted to weighing in. They, you know, they got a long season, right? They could be doing a lot of things, but... You know, they're up on the whiteboard. Hey, what do you think of this? And, and that was really cool to see. I think Sam Flood said it the best, you know, NBC's guy, with which we all know, right, that, you know, no other sport would I be sitting across from, you know, one of their star athletes looking at, you know, where can we take this sport from a rules perspective? And that, that was cool. So to me, I learned more, you know, from those guys. And I think Jeff's perspective, you know, even a guy, Ricky Craven with the SPN, um, Junior for sure. You know, the door is always open to, to work with those guys. You know, it's funny. I was going to bring this up, Steve, because we had Burton on this podcast a few weeks ago uh, talking about stage racing, about the origins of it. And he said that those meetings last winter were some of the best things he's ever been involved in, not just NASCAR, but just period. He said that it was because the vetting process was just so good and that everybody just brought in their ideas without prejudice. No one took it personal when they were, as you said, beat up. Yep. Some were shot down yep. until you guys landed on something. Jeff was joking, but I think he was half serious. He said, you know, if our government, right and left, could like all meet in the same room and agree, like, hey, we love this country, like like those guys love NASCAR, and let's just figure this out. Let's have honest, candid conversations and be in a better place. Is I that kind of how it went? Totally. Um, you know, one of the, the tough parts is, right, the, the sports struggle a little bit, right? And, and right. so, you know, with some of the sponsorship struggles and attendance we all have recognized that we've got to come together that forces a little bit of it but even then you could have said you know everybody could have pointed fingers and said it's your fault or whoever's fault for for where the sport is today but it wasn't that way it was we all love the sport we believe in it how do we get back on a growth a growth chart and you know we've got great partners with with you guys in NBC and and how do we make this work? And candidly, NBC was a big part of it. Um, you know, we met in the fall and we and we went up and talked about what are the challenges and opportunities for the sport, and not being afraid to make bold changes. And so, you know, from the very top at NBC, there was you know a clear message that we're in with you, but but we need to see some things. And then that was helpful to get folks to sit down and talk. And the last thing I'd say to, on that is everybody did have ideas. You know, that, right. and and what was great was a driver who may say, well, why don't we do this? The track could give a perspective. You know, the broadcast partner could give a perspective and everybody at least understood where everyone was coming from and not everybody won but it was kind of like they all felt like they had their fingerprints on this 
You guys had another meeting today with the drivers. We had uh, two meetings. We had the, the driver council and then the kind of all-driver meeting. So I would say the driver council is, has been really cool. Um, you know, it, it always starts out the first time with, you know, everybody just, I think Brent Dewar says this, you know, everybody's just going to dump their bucket, right? You know, just here's all the problems we got. <laughs> okay, you know, we're going to work on that. And now it's been some really good feedback on, so today we talked about, you know, the rules package, you know, what do the drivers feel? And I think the consensus, Nate, was from, from their seat, you know, 15 to 16, lower down force, really big difference, liked it. 16 to 17, not that big of a difference. They, they not, not as positive, I guess they would say. So, you know, our feedback is, well, you know, a lot of the metrics are, are good, but let's look at some of the things, you know, it's the balance of the car. I think we might want to look at a tweaking if we can. So good feedback on that. Um, obviously the tires, where we're racing, um, you know, medical updates, you know, and just, just really talking about how do we get better as a sport um, and, and what we need to do collectively. So are those driver council meetings, Steve, similar to the way that the stage stuff went? Or is it more structure? You come up with a defined agenda and you run through So things? Uh, two things, I'd say. So the driver council um, is we've got kind of a text group that will get you on. Just kidding. But it's, it's just <laughs> yeah, on, on uh, topics that they want to cover. You know, and yeah. kind of we keep a running tally of, hey, here's what we want to talk about in the council. So we'll give three or four updates on just some things coming on. NBC coming, right? A new way that they want to interview drivers, you know, when they finish hey, this is coming, everybody's teed up, and then we'll go through just a lot of listening on, you know, hey, what are some of the thoughts you guys have? Then what we do from that is two to three drivers. We've got, you know, the team owners um, and then stages, competition. So we'll ask for some volunteers on the stages. So it was Denny, Brad, Joey Logano, Harvick, and then, hey, we want to be part of this. So same thing, we'll meet in probably four weeks. We wanted to give NBC some time to uh, see how the stages play out, and then we'll meet again on 2018. So you have, uh, the collaborative obviously is, is a big buzzword around NASCAR for the last couple of years, and you have so much information and so many opinions that are being shared now, which is great because you, you give everyone a seat at the table, and I'm sure no one feels left out. But I'm sure it also requires a huge number of approvals that weren't necessary before getting everybody on the same page. And in some ways, I would think that the leadership of NASCAR has never been more informed, but it might never have been harder to rule in a way because in the past, good or bad, sometimes iron fisted, things got done according to the way NASCAR said it would get mm-hmm. done. And now, to to your credit, I think you guys have subjugated yourselves in some ways, like through the charter system. I don't know if people always understand that charters aren't just about divvying up revenues with teams. It's giving them a hand on the till where yep. they help you guys guide competition decisions. So it kind of reminds me, Steve, of what teams say now about they have so much data coming in. One of the reasons they have so many engineers now is they need engineers to like process the data and decide what's important, what's not. As much as it is to have engineers to generate the data, you have to have them to discern where to put your focus. How do you guys do that with this new great. model? It's a, it's a <laughs> I mean, great question. So you, you have so many voices to listen to. How do you gauge like which ones? No, it's a, it's a great question. So I think um, you try and get all the stakeholders uh, to understand where you're going, right? But right. He, what's happened as part of this is even on a small decision um, that you would think we used to make, you know, a couple of years ago is a no brainer and we'd still make it now. Well, how wasn't I informed ahead of time? You know, see, cause there's so right. mu- there's so much outreach. So that's been a little bit of a learning process for us, but I think the best way to explain what we try and do is on any big decision now, Nate, if you put, you know, if you just put on a board tracks, owners, drivers, you know, fans, TV partners, media, and kind of an OEMs across the board. And you said, hey, we're going to we're gonna look at stage racing, whatever it may be. Um, if it's a neutral to positive, we're going to go forward. Or if it is a negative to one, but you know what? It's going to grow in all these other areas, we're going forward. So it's, it's really trying to balance, you know, some folks may be impacted on a neutral to negative, but if it's overall, we feel like it's going to grow the sport. 
we we got to make that call. And ultimately, it's you know, again, we're not going to make everybody happy. Uh, but I think as long as we can explain why we made the decision, I think where we get hurt is when no one understands why we made a decision, including the media. And that's on us. If we haven't properly at least said, here's why we did it, you don't have to agree, you know, we should expect a lot of criticism. Let's go rapid fire if we can, right. competition stuff. Uh-oh. I know that you said you're <laughs> – on Twitter you said you're looking at some aspects of the car when asked about a recent uh, sports business journal report that cars would be more stock. So rapid fire would be, you know, can you look at maybe specking out some parts and pieces that no fan would care about and really dialing in where you want to race and, yeah. and making those those areas of the car really important to the race teams. And splitter, same category, that's still – Team va- team Valence? Team Valence. Yeah, <laughs> Hashtag like, uh, Team Valence. Team yeah, I'm on that too, as well as Dale Jr. Um, so I would say Splitter. We know the fans hate it. Um, Gen Seven. Uh, you can bet we will not be idiots. That uh, if we can get rid of a Splitter, we would we would do that. Digital numbers on the cars to signify their positions, a la IndyCar and IMSA. I saw you say that might be a good thing in the future. I absolutely. I think uh, so. Not only that, but even you know the the biometrics from the drivers, all those things should be a cool display that we have in the car. So. You know, again, I go back to instead of teams spending money and we all spend money on, you know, spindles, can you can you shorten up the pay scale on that and put that effort towards, you know, the digital stuff that, that's fan-facing? On that note, pit speed's part of that, making that transparent. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Here's one of the things where uh, I'm not really not letting you in on anything because you know this anyway. <laughs> but So we had uh, the visor cam finally displayed, you know, with, with Danica. I think provided a really cool perspective. You've got it on AJ Allmendinger for the, the race here uh, Saturday night. But one of the things you hear from the teams, is, ah, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to wear that because of my digital dash. And so for us, there's a bigger benefit for the fans to, you know, so going forward, you know, there's a couple things we got to get through. But, you know, we're going to expect 40 drivers to, to have that on and have that perspective. So, you know, we're going to have to give and take on what data is out there. But pit road speed something we could definitely get out there. Has the ship sailed on lug nut monitoring electronically? I know one time, one point you guys were talking about putting chips in lug nuts, right? It has. Um, <laughs> okay. It's been, a, it's been a challenge. I shouldn't say it sailed. So we're looking at technology on pit road via the gun um, and some different technologies that, that we may go that aspect versus kind of looking at different chips. Their gun meaning pit, pit if, gun, yeah. if their gun hits yep. it. Okay, interesting. Man, I'm running out of time and I had Uh-oh. so many more things for you. Yellow flag laps <laughs> yes. at the end of stages. I know this has been a big thing, obviously, yep. lately. And I just want to insert my own point here. No, Steve, that'd be awesome. That I struggle to understand fans here who don't respect the fact that this was done in part for them because the intent was we want to reduce commercials. Somebody's got to pay the freight. And so you got to have commercials during the course of a race. And this is intended to reduce green flag commercials, particularly toward Correct. the end of the race. And it's been effective in doing that, right? It has. The fans are seeing 30% more racing. So green flag racing. Yeah. So it's, it's been. But yet they don't want. Yeah. Here's, <laughs> here's where I think fans get mad. I don't, I don't want to say I speak for the fans obviously i don't but i I think where and i can understand this where it doesn't make sense is instead of stage two let's say let's say the stages are 80 80 and 160 when the fans turn on their television stage one ends when they see the start of stage two it already says lap seven of 80 and i think that is just a reminder that wait a minute did i get cheated out of this versus 
could we make each stage? Could we make the second stage 80 laps and just start it when we go green? It's 80 laps and maybe take it off that tail end and just make that seven laps shorter. So I think that may be something we look at. But the idea of not counting caution laps, I think that's still an important part of the race and fuel mileage. So I don't think that option's on the table. But we would look at you know starting that second stage kind of straight up on lap one. This uh, kind of gets to another thing I want to talk about, Steve, about the, the core fan base. I saw you tweet recently that the word passionate. That can manifest itself in some really good ways that NASCAR fans are, are so passionate. But it also strikes me that there's a negative side to that, for me at least, that I've seen sometimes, and that you guys introduce stage racing and the some of the core fans are like, well, I'm never going to watch another lap. And they're almost protective of the product of NASCAR to the point of being, in my mind, somewhat self-destructive in some ways. And it's almost like they have this private club that they regard as NASCAR fandom, that they don't really want changed. How do you thread that needle? I realize I'm asking you a really tough question here, but how do you embrace core fans who, like you said, have passionate opinions and don't want things changed? Embrace them, but realize you've got to still progress and do new things, not just for them, but also make new fans welcome. I think it's a great question. Uh, Probably the million-dollar question, right? Yeah. Part of it is explaining better why we're doing some things, right? And we may have made some decisions that, um, you know, in hindsight, if you go back, you, you change those. But in terms of, like, I take stage racing, to me, that feels like it almost should have been there. And, and it feels more natural. And granted, it's a different form. But, you know, if you want your driver to have a better shot uh, for more moments, to, to, to be able to gain more points, you know, to be on top of the wheel – all day long uh, to me that is you know the stages and the races and it feels more about what we're all about i mean it's right. beating and banging and and so I, I struggle a little bit that with that with the core fan in terms of you know hey i'm not watching but i think the good news on our end is we've seen it be pretty well embraced across the board and so i think it's more decisions as we go forward native making sure that you know when when i talked about you know putting that up on the board the core fan you're not going to know exactly what every core fan will but you know how do we think they'll react and candidly a lot of it is the drivers you know the the fans listen to the drivers right they don't care about what i say or whoever it's it's the drivers Mm -hmm. and when they know that the drivers believe in something pretty good bet for nascar we're going to be on the winning side of it and and I think the stages were part of that. We knew that when we talked to the drivers, they're like, yeah, I've, I've been part of this and I believe in this. And so the fans tend to, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And where we probably do ourselves a disservice in the industry is is when we don't include some of the core voices and, and we make a call and you know we get taken a task, rightly so, by the media and the drivers. And, you know, fans want people like them and, and they yeah. see, hey, maybe Nate Ryan doesn't agree too. And I agree with Nate and I'm going after those guys. And <laughs> I think part of it too is, you know, I've told my daughter this, you know, I was like, like, you know, we're the government, unfortunately. We're, you know, I, I can want <laughs> to be liked by everyone, everything yeah, we do. but we got to make yeah. we got to make tough calls. But the biggest thing that I hope for for the sport is that, unlike any other sport, I think that that we feel like you know we're all fans as well, and, and I think that's what NASCAR has that maybe is different from other sports is you know the relationship from the folks who work for NASCAR and the fans. You know, we're, we're all fans of the sport and, and feel like we're we're one together. It may not always be that way, but I don't see a lot of that when you know you watch the NHL or some other sports and you see some of those guys, you don't see that interaction as much with the athletes and with the teams, and, and we like that aspect of the sport. One area where hardcore fans and drivers have been aligned recently is yep. debris cautions. Yes. At Sonoma, Tony Stewart, Dale Jr., Brad Keselowski all publicly supported the concept of the last half 
it was allowed to just play out. There, were, there was no interruption. Was that coincidental? Was there a message being sent after there was a lot of discussion about that final debris caution at Michigan? Uh, I think there was uh, there was fair criticism after Michigan. I think Nate for us is um, you know putting more process in place. You know when one of those cautions is called and being as transparent as we can. You know we're looking at you know do we display whatever it was on the hauler? So you know if someone has a question, you know here's here's what it was uh, that part or piece may not always be there if somebody hits it right and it goes flying but I think you know we recognize that you know we're a big time sport there's a lot of eyeballs on the sport so utilizing as much technology as we can having a number of people weigh in on that decision going forward and I think you saw that in Sonoma um, you'll see that going forward as well as just being as transparent as we can or, or coming over and explaining you know why we made a call or if we missed one being open about that as well. You tweeted recently about Lewis Hamilton. Actually, it was last year. You love the way he races. You love the swagger. It's good for motorsports. Is more swagger needed, do you think, Steve, in NASCAR? Uh, 100%, Nate. <laughs> I, I think that, and, and I get the fact, right, that sponsors pay a lot of money with drivers. But right. uh, my my example that I use, and I know folks, you know, not everybody is Conor McGregor can say, you know, what Conor McGregor says. you got to be good at what you do. But if you look at that one athlete and what he's done for UFC, it's incredible. Everybody wants to follow him. Press conferences are a must-watch, right? You've got to be there. So do I expect every driver to be like that? No. But we have to enable drivers to be able to be themselves. And I think too often uh, drivers, and we've done this to them over the years, you know, hey, you can't take us on. Or, and we, we have really made a conscious effort to take the reins off. We still have the issue of, you know, sponsors want uh, their driver representing their brand. But I'm, I'm a big advocate of when a driver's themselves, they're going to have a bigger following and, and hopefully their sponsor will have more of a following as well. So that's a message to our young drivers that we have been very clear on. And I'd use a guy like Ryan Blaney that I think you're seeing more of that on. You know, he's, he's himself. He's cool. Uh, even, you know, Kyle Busch, I know fans, you know, he, he's got some, some challenges sometimes even with us. But, you know, when Kyle, I think there was a race, he, he laid down on the stretcher, right? And uh, just, and so he's like, oh, you're going to be mad. I, was like, I thought that was great. I mean, it was funny. It was, it was well said, you know. So right. we got to have more of that, and we got to be yeah. open to that. But the only thing we've said, Nate, and Brian's been very clear on this, don't rip the sport. Oh, no, that was the worst call I've ever seen. That's okay. Just don't tell fans don't not tell to watch your not sport. To watch. I mean, okay. I, yeah. you know, that's that's the only thing where, where we were going to say, hey, come on, guys. But other than that, have at it. You know, that's that's where we want to be. Is Lewis Hamilton going to come race NASCAR? I would. Uh, I would love to see Lewis Hamilton. Come. I think what's cool is I would love to. Uh, I'd love to see him just show up at you know one of our Europe races just to see. Uh, but he's friends with a lot of our guys. But I think it would be tremendous. I think. If you look back at the old Daytona 500s, right, you saw a lot of that. You saw different yeah. drivers, and with everyone's schedules, it's crazy, but I would love to see that. I think it would be cool. You have the business background, so I want to ask you just real quick before Tom Bryant screams at me. Oh, I didn't even say <laughs> <laughs> SB Nation story that just came out by Jordan Bianchi about Monsters title sponsorship, and apparently they did this promotion at Pocono where you bring a can, you get free admission on yep. Friday, and, and Brandon Igdalski at Pocono said it went very well. When you get somebody through the gates like that, though, Steve, when, when you have this millennial audience, that a lot of these kids, they don't have cable subscriptions. They might live off the grid as you and I know yeah. it. Guys born yep, in the yeah, Gen yeah. X yep. generation. How do you keep them wanting to come back or be interested in NASCAR when you get them through the gate and they're there with their monster can? Like, how does NASCAR appeal to them? Is it as simple as like pushing the youth narrative of Ryan Blaney, Chase Elliott, Kyle Larson? Is it as simple as just showing, hey, you got kids your age who are doing this? Does that make them want to come back or go on NASCAR.com or Snapchat or whatever to watch NASCAR again? Or are there other ways to kind of get them attuned to what you guys are I doing? think a couple things, and two of them are what you said. I think you've got to have, you know, no matter 
matter how good your product is, right? And you even see this with the Olympics, you have got to care about that athlete. There has to be a hook that, you know, I want to watch Ryan Blaney. I want to watch Danny Suarez. So you've got to have that as part of it. Um, you've got to put on a good product. But, you know, more, more importantly, I think, You've also got to, when, when folks are at a racetrack, you've got to entertain them. And not everybody, you know, I go to you know, Orlando Magic Games or Charlotte Games with my family, and, and I may like, you know, what's going on on the racetrack. My wife may like, you know, the activity that's going on in between plays. And so you've got to entertain people while they're here. And one of the cool things about NASCAR is, you know, this is an event, right? People are here three, four days with campers. So the more we can have other activities, not just the race, the race is obviously important, but, you know, bringing those fans in, especially the younger generation, concerts, some cool things that really engage them at an early age, I think it's going to be huge for us. And then getting back to, you know, bringing your kids to the racetrack. I mean, that was the tradition that built this sport and showing them it's cool. And I'm encouraged, you know, Nate, by the young drivers, the blame, that, that next generation of drivers who grew up in the sport because their dads raced and you know them being able to relate to some of those young fans out there that hey we're we're cool people you should watch and and come you know come take a look at us now granted they they got to win and they've got to have a personality that you want to follow but they're starting they're starting and i I think the potential is you know when i look at them not just because they're they're our drivers and our part of our sport but I, i think there's some cool guys that you know when i look at my kids they'd be like those are some cool people to follow, and, and that, that excites me about the future. All right. Hey, I really appreciate you giving me so oh, much Oh, this was time. awesome. And, and uh, not because you're here and I'm sitting across from you, but I'd say thanks for the always the passion about the sport. I think you always call it like it is, and uh, anything I can do in the future, let me know. Appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks, bud. Thanks again to Steve O'Donnell. As you heard me say, as a podcast host, I did a poor job on the time management skills. I had about 10 more things to ask him about or follow up on. I promise I'll do better with that next time if Steve is gracious enough to join us again. Huge thanks to Eric Nyquist of NASCAR IMC for coordinating this. I've wanted to have a competition official on this podcast for a long time. I'm glad we were finally able to make it happen. Thanks as well to Tom Bryant for holding up the vehicle that was taking Steve O'Donnell from the Daytona infield to the scoring tower for the start in the Xfinity race. Steve was on a tight schedule, and I made Tom sweat. So thanks for letting us go nearly an hour with that conversation. I really enjoyed it. NASCAR and NBC coverage will be at Kentucky Speedway this weekend. On Thursday, Xfinity practices at 2 and 4 p.m. will be on the NBC Sports app. The final Xfinity practice will be at 6 p.m. on NBCSN. On Friday from Kentucky Speedway, cup practice from 10 a.m. to noon will be on the NBC Sports app, and then the final cup practice at 1 on NBCSN. Xfinity qualifying at 4.30 p.m. Friday on NBCSN, cup qualifying Friday at 6 p.m. on NBCSN, and then the Xfinity race at 7.30 p.m. on NBCSN starting with Countdown to Green. Saturday night, the cup race is on NBCSN, starts with NASCAR America at 6 p.m., and then the race at 7 p.m. on NBCSN, starting with Countdown to Green. And you can stream all of this at NBCSports.com live, or also go there for full event replays. A reminder as well that NASCAR America is now on from 5 to 6 p.m. daily on NBCSN during the week. We just started our weekly Wednesday sit-down with a NASCAR driver, our first guest was Daytona winner Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Every Wednesday on NASCAR America from 5 to 6 p.m., we will have a driver, so be sure to stay tuned for that. NBCSN 5 to 6 daily for NASCAR America. Please spread the word about this podcast if you like it. 
You can leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. We're also available at Audioboom, Stitcher, Spotify, virtually any podcasting app. You're going to be able to find the NASCAR and NBC podcast presented by STP. Next week, we will have Slugger Labby as our guest, the fine new addition to NASCAR America as a crew chief analyst. The week after that, we will have Roger Slack, the general manager of Eldora Speedway, entering his series annual truck series race. And a huge thanks to Tess Quinlan for editing and producing last week's Pit Crew episode. I was remiss in thanking her. That was her idea, and we got great response. That was a long-form episode, something different. We're trying new ideas. I'm certainly receptive to more. If you've got ideas, you can send them to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the NASCAR and NBC podcast, presented by STP. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.